I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. People are much more likely to help a single individual than they are to help several individuals. And then if you ask, well, how much do they care about helping 100 individuals or 1,000 individuals? The amount of their concern or their willingness to help just doesn't scale proportionally with how many people they can help. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Today, we're going to talk long-termism, a wild moral idea that's absolutely crucial to our current predicament on the planet. It's a very challenging idea to get your head around, but I reckon you will all find it a fun, ethics-extending and wildly important concept to wrestle with here. Long-termism is the argument and life approach that says positively influencing the long-term future is the key moral priority of our times. The long-term future is where we should be putting the bog of our resources and attention for a bunch of moral, existential and pragmatic reasons. To discuss all of this, I travelled to Oxford University in the UK to talk to the world's expert on this subject, William McCaskill from his office that houses his various schools and institutes. Will is an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Oxford, who, when appointed, was the youngest such professor in the world. He's a Forbes 30 under 30 social entrepreneur and a pioneering voice in the effective altruism movement, along with Peter Singer, who was a previous guest on Wild. In my chat with Will, we talk briefly about effective altruism, but I encourage you all to go back to the Peter Singer episode to get the full picture of how this movement works. Will himself is a prolifically effective and altruistic dude. I mean, in his spare time, he co-funded the nonprofit Giving What We Can, a global movement that encourages people to give 10% of their income to effective charities. And he's coached billionaires and big names such as Sam Harris and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Rutger Bregman, who's also been a guest on this podcast. And he also somewhat notoriously donates everything he earns over and above the base UK salary to charity, which is about 50% of his income. He also co-funded the Centre for Effective Altruism, as well as 80,000 Hours, which researches how to make the most impact through your career choice, 80,000 Hours being the number of hours we spend in our careers across our working life. Together, they have moved over $500 million to effective charities. 
Most recently, he helped set up the Global Priorities Institute and Forethought Foundation, both of which take the principles of effective altruism, doing the maximum good, and fleshes out how the hell to prioritise the competing clusterfuck of concerns and existential risks that humanity faces, and also how to think ahead to reflect forward on our impact on the future. It's big, big stuff. And I have to throw in for context, Will is 35. And also for a little bit of granular personal context stuff, McCaskill is Will's ex-wife's name, which he took after writing a philosophy paper on men taking their wives' names. The effect of altruism, long-termism, existential risk community is a buzzing one, and I'm absolutely obsessed by it. And it's part of the reason I came to the UK to tap into the big minds here, developing a roadmap for what's ahead. It's the area that I'm actually moving into next. It's an extension on my work in the climate area. In this chat, I hope to leave you with a foundation for understanding long-termism and some of the philosophical quandaries we need to be chatting and thinking through now. This is another point Will covers off that now is the most important era in human history. He also makes a convincing case for the need for extensive moral reflection. And again, now. Will's colleague Toby Ord places the risk of our extinction during the 21st century, that's, you know, within the next 100 years or so, at one in six. And it's worth just letting that sink in. Long-termism, however, as you'll learn, is a framework that can hopefully reduce those odds. And even better, lead humanity to an unfathomable flourishing. These are all themes that he also covers off in his book, What We Owe the Future, that comes out in August, September, and that Stephen Fry describes as a book of great daring. I found it a wonderful insight into one of this era's greatest minds and spirits. All right, it's probably time to meet Will McCaskill. So, Will, it's actually really hard to know where to start and unpacking this topic that we're going to discuss today. But let's start with effective altruism because I did a podcast with Peter Singer not so long ago and we did cover it off, but I'd love your elevator pitch for effective altruism. Yeah, so effective altruism is both a philosophy and a community philosophy of trying to figure out how can we do as much good as possible with our time and money, and then a community of people who are really trying to take action on that basis, trying to go out there in the world and make the world a better place. Okay. All right. That's that's a nice, succinct understanding. And anyone who wants to listen to more on, on the topic can obviously go back and listen to Peter Singer, who's a bit of a master in this area. Um, of course, yeah. Huge influence on me. That's right. He's run down of it. So do you continue to live by it? My understanding is, and I know that Peter talks about this, he kind of puts you on a bit of a pedestal, uses you as an example, as a professor who made a commitment that once you earned over a certain amount of money, everything above that would go to charity. Can you just, is that still the case? Uh, yeah, that's right. So the figure was £20,000 per year in Oxford 2009 money <laughs> post-tax. So that's now about um, £27,000 um, post-tax. That would be about um, 45000 Australian dollars, I think. Uh, that sounds yeah. about right, yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's plenty of caveats there. Um, if I have children in the future, or perhaps if I get extremely sick or something, then it won't be the same amount. But those are not the case at the moment. And that means that at the moment, I give a little over half of my income 
Um, it depends exactly how you count income. Um, yes. But it's, a, it's about that amount, amount. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've spoken to a couple of different people on this podcast. Rutger Bregman, for instance, donates, I think, most of the income from his book profits and things like that. There's a bunch of people, there's a whole community, isn't there, who are doing this. And it's something I think that people are starting to enjoy. Do you enjoy the fact that you give your money away. I mean, I think a lot of people, they ask me this, don't you miss it? Don't you think about all the things you could be doing with that money? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, in general, being part of the effective altruism community is just this enormous benefit in my life where once you have a reasonable amount of money, where even on the amount I'm living on, I'm still in about just 5% of the world's population. So it's not like I'm poor by global standards. Anyone listening to this podcast, right, is going to be in It's going to be in the richest 5 or 10% for sure. I think it's above what's now maybe about 20,000 Australian dollars would be in the richest 10%. So yeah. that's about a guess, yeah. Yeah. Whereas I'm part of this wonderful community of people I love and admire and really respect and who inspire me. And I'm doing work and contributing to a broader mission that I believe is helping make the world better, making thousands of lives better. And that's just very reassuring. Like And priceless, as and, MasterCard would say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you have a you know, if you're having a down day, then what will like reassure you? Like, would it be like looking at your fancy car parked on the road? Probably not. But thinking like, well, you know, I am responsible for significantly improving the lives of thousands of people, literally saving lives. That gives your life purpose. And like, I think it's, that's it's certainly something that has been, um, yeah, very like uh, rewarding from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do get that. Of course, you then moved on to sort of um, writing a book about moral uncertainty and then moved on to long-termism. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Your next book covers it extensively. And I've got the name of your book and the details in the show notes. But I'm going to have a stab at describing what I think long-termism is. Based on various calculations, if we don't wipe ourselves out as a species, humanity has the capacity to exist for a very, very long time. That being so, what we do now is is likely to affect a lot of humans down the track, like a lot of humans. And so the moral argument goes that if we care about our impact on a human today, like our child or somebody down the road or somebody in a year's time, we should care about the impact on someone in a 100,000 years' time or whatever it might be. And then we add to this that we are sort of living in the most important era in history where the values we put in place now could go one way or another. We could make ourselves extinct or we could lead humanity to a radical flourishing, like a next level thriving. And no pressure, but we are the generation that get to choose which path we're going to take and we must choose. I think that's very much your argument. So if we commit to this and we choose a path of flourishing, then we might just not wipe ourselves out. That brings, And that brings us back into sort of the existential risk um, domain. So how did that go? Is that sort of basically it? Yeah, that was pretty good. Um, so yeah, in this book, it's called What We Owe the Future. And it's precisely three things. One is just taking seriously how much is at stake when we look to the future of civilization, just how long humanity could last for, how many people's lives are on the line. Homo sapiens evolved about 300,000 years ago. For most of that time, we were hunter-gatherers. Um, we developed agriculture about 12,000 years ago, cities 6,000 years ago, industrial revolution was about 250 years ago. 
300,000 years behind us, how much ahead? Well, typical mammal species lives about a million years. That would give us 700,000 years to come. If we continued at the same population as we have now, that would mean there's a thousand future people for every person alive today. Right. But we're not a typical mammal species. And so that means we could wipe ourselves out in the next few centuries, undoubtedly. But we also could survive for much longer. So the Earth is habitable for hundreds of millions of years. And that's based on the sun, right? Like how long the sun could potentially exist for, which is several million years. Uh, several billion years, yeah. Oh, several so, billion, all right. A thousand times more. So, um, yeah, the sun will increase in intensity and in luminosity, um, and that will sterilize the Earth somewhere between a few hundred million years and 1.5 billion years. Mm, give or take. And then the sun, give or take, exactly. And then the sun will keep expanding um, and it will use, use up its helium reserves so it's hydrogen reserves in about 5 billion years. It's helium reserves in about 8 billion years. And then after that point, it'll no longer be engaging in any sort of fusion. So we could potentially, as a species, exist up until that point? For much longer, actually. Because um, mm. there's no reason in principle that we know of why we couldn't one day take to the stars other than our own solar system. Mm. Elon Musk is working on that for us at the moment. Elon Musk is working for it, but even if he weren't, look, there's, you know, if we have hundreds of millions of years while still on Earth, that's plenty of time to develop the technology that could allow us to spread beyond our own solar system. And that could increase the lifespan of civilization from hundreds of millions of years to hundreds of trillions of years, in fact, like a million-fold increase. The last stars will still be shining. We have the capacity to live for a very long time, and you can multiply out how many humans, and I know you've done graphs and charts and all of that kind of thing just to show the absolute sheer number of humans that will come after us in 2022. Exactly. And the key thought is just, we are extraordinarily early in the human story. So if humanity's story- Potentially. Potentially, that's right. Mm. So if humanity's story were a novel- we would be on the first paragraph of the first page. Okay. So that being the case, you've made the moral argument that we need to think about these people, these, I don't know how many billions of people down the track, we need to bear their, them in mind. If you care about me across the room, you, you don't want me sort of, you know, going through pain, then we should equally care about somebody in 100,000 years. That being so, we need to make some very big moral decisions right now. And you make the case that the juncture is now. Why is that the case? Why is it that we are at such an important juncture? And I know a number of your colleagues talk about this as well. Uh, yeah. So the argument for thinking that we're at this crucial time is just how fast technological progress is going and other sorts of model of change, like moral changes. But I think this is the clearest where... For most of human history, these 300,000 years, technological progress was very, very slow. Mm. Um, population grew very slowly. People didn't get any richer. We very gradually um, increased uh, the sort of technology we had available to us. And that all changed a couple of hundred years ago. And now we're at this period where we're very rapidly developing new technologies. And some of these technologies could be extremely powerful. So two that I particularly mention are synthetic biology, the ability to design new pathogens. These pathogens could have unprecedented disruptive power. So in just the same way that the technology of nuclear fission allowed us to create nuclear weapons, which were a thousand times more powerful than conventional bombs, 
and then hydrogen-based nuclear weapons that were a thousand times more powerful again, bioweapons could be even more powerful again in terms of the destructive power. That's one example of a technology. A second example of a technology that we're developing very rapidly is artificial intelligence. It already is doing some really incredible things that aren't widely known because the rate of progress has been so fast in the last 10 years. The leading AI labs are trying to design artificially intelligent systems that are not merely tools in the way that like a computer program on your laptop is a tool, but are thinking, reasoning beings. They're agents. They're out there. They're like, that's the ultimate aim. And the aim is to do it within the next couple of decades, but that are able to do a very wide variety of things in just the same way that human beings can, and that can kind of act as reasoning actors in the way that human beings can. And I think there are good arguments for thinking that the point at which we develop that technology would be one of the most pivotal points in all of human history. Yeah. And it's all happening right now. And my bet is that a lot of people who are listening are just simply not aware of what is happening, how fast the technology is moving, what the motivations are, and also what the existential risk is from all of this. The climate crisis, I think, is one of the crises that we face. And we're familiar with that. But all this other stuff, it's happening at a pace where I think people aren't even able to fathom it. The people who are even working on it aren't having the discussions in and around, well, how do we tell everyone about this? How do we have a global discussion on where this could end up? And I guess it really does beg a bit of a two-part question, Will. The first is like, are we equipped to care about and fathom these future generations? Like, do we have that capacity at this important juncture? And then the second question, and it's linked, is are we equipped to do the level of reflection and forethought required to steer this technology one way or the other. Do you think we're capable of that? Yes and no. So I think no insofar as both of those things are an enormous challenge where um, psychologists have identified a bias in humans' kind of moral reasoning that they call scope insensitivity. If you give people moral quantities, there's a certain number of people you can help. People are much more likely to help a single individual than they are to help several individuals. And then if you ask, well, how much do they care about helping 100 individuals or 1,000 individuals? The amount of their concern or their willingness to help just doesn't scale proportionally with how many people they can help. So in the words of Stalin, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Yes. It just kind of overwhelms our brains and we just can't take it seriously. But morally speaking, if you can help 100 people, that's 10 times as important as helping 10 people if it's by the same amount, because everyone should count equally. And that means that when we're thinking about events that could impact the entire course of the future, it just is very hard. At the same time, I think we can rise to the challenge to some extent. And we've seen that through the enormous rise of concern about future generations. So firstly, through the environmentalist movement and climate change movements have suddenly kind of given representation and a voice to many, many generations in the future that we might be impacting through resource depletion and carbon emissions. So here I'm kind of reassured by the effect of altruism um, and kind of long-termism movements themselves, where now we just have thousands of people around the world who are willing to take, you know, significant action. That might be donating 10% of their income. That might be switching their careers in order to work on topics that they have deliberately chosen because they think they are the most important things from a very long-term perspective, whether that's pandemic preparedness or, you know, ensuring the safe development of artificial intelligence. 
We just are seeing people who are like motivated by these arguments. And that's quite inspiring to me. So this moral discussion is starting to happen, but I would have to say that it's happening sort of in certain circles, Mm -hmm. you know, and I suppose a big part of the reason I want to do this podcast and actually have these kinds of conversations with you and your peers is to get this conversation out further. Mm. Because I think when you start to hear about it and you start to work through the moral logic, you can't unsee it, can you? It's significant. I've heard you explain one reason why long-termism is so important is that, you know, to save a human life is to save a potential, you know, a potential human's capacity. What could they actually end up doing with their lives and what exciting contributions could they bring? But you also say this applies to humanity broadly. And so when we engage in long-termism, we're talking about saving humanity's potential. And if we wipe ourselves out, right, in the next 100 years, which is a possibility, you know, it's such a bloody shame. (laughs) Like hundreds of thousands of years of evolutionary progression that obviously increased exponentially amounted to us wiping ourselves out like some little virus in a petri dish. I mean, that seems such a waste of what humanity could be and I think really is here to be. That's my personal and very spiritual belief. So I love that you talk about this idea of long-termism being about saving humanity's potential. If we get this right, humanity could actually be really awesome. You know, we could thrive. We could have this incredible productivity and we could actually produce lives now for people down the track that are truly flourishing lives. Is this what motivates you to really push long-termism? It's one of the things that really motivates me for sure. I think people don't appreciate or really think about just how good things in the future could be. And one way of thinking about this is to look to the past. So let's go back to 1700 in England. Well-off Englishman. What would his life be like? It was pretty bad. If he had, you know, toothache, that would be unbearable pain. There would be no painkillers. If he had to have it extracted, it would be excruciating. It'd be a risk of death. He had a risk of dying from syphilis or cholera or typhus. He could basically not travel. Even traveling within England would be um, extremely difficult. London was 17 times as polluted. Sewage would just be, you know, on the streets. If he had children, um, a very large proportion of them would die before the age of five. And that's for a well-off Englishman. If he was a woman, the feminist movement did not exist. She would not be able to go to university. If he were gay, he would not be able to love openly because sodomy was punishable by death. He would not live in a democracy. In fact, no one in the world would live in a democracy. And that's just 300 years. At the time, 75% of the world's population were in some form of forced labor, either slavery or serfdom. So, and that's just 300 years. And now we're looking to a future that might span thousands or millions or even more. And so if when we think about that, we just imagine a kind of fixed up world today, like a kind of global Sweden or something, (laughs) um, that's like far, far short of how good the future could be. One way of getting at it is just think about the best day of your life. So just when you're feeling just very good, everything's going really well, you're having moments of, maybe you have some moments of creative insight, maybe you're just, you know, passionately in love. Now imagine just a life that was, I think personally, like my best days can be kind of hundreds of times better than a typical day. (laughs) Now imagine that, but for the whole entirety of your life, like every day, every day being as good as that. I've got to say, when I do imagine it, and I know that, you know, you've made no great secret of the fact that you've suffered depression, you would appreciate that 
the dark times also reveal the beautiful bright times, the flourishing times. So I'm not quite sure whether I would want all of my best day, you know, my best days sort of 365 days a year. But I get your point. We could actually have incredible amount of comfort and ease that then can enable incredible spiritual and emotional growth, which I think most people would agree could lead to some incredible generosity and extension of those attributes within human nature that get neglected when we're distracted as we are at the moment. We're distracted away from the giving, the sharing, the connecting, the true love. Absolutely. Yeah. So potential for spiritual development is just enormous. There are you know, a small faction of the world who can devote themselves to path to enlightenment or other sorts of spiritual fulfillment, but that could be a path that could be open to everybody. So, you know, the amount that people work is half that in rich countries, it's half that of a hundred years ago. And, you know, predictable improvements in technology will decrease that amount again. Ways that you live your life, if you want to work, if you want to experience hard things, you can choose to do so. I really wanted to cover that part off to give people something to think about that is actually, it's a carrot, you know, that dangles. But flip side is we could go the other way. And I think a lot of the discussion is in that space. And a lot of your colleagues uh, work in the area of existential risk. And I know you do too. But to your mind, what are the chances that we could wipe ourselves out? Over the course of this century, I think the chance of something that wipes out all sorts of civilization with no replacement by any sort of intelligent beings is uh, maybe around about 1%. So an existential catastrophe is something that either wipes out all kind of intelligent life or wipes it out and replaces it with something or just like loses almost all value. Another way in which we could lose almost all value is the misuse of AI, for example. There's active work on what's called the alignment problem within AI, which is as we're developing more and more powerful AI systems, how do you ensure that uh, they do what you want them to do? This will become particularly challenging when AI systems become considerably more powerful than us. The leading predictions by the kind of most in-depth models and modeling, and also if you ask experts, suggest there's a very substantial chance of that happening within a few decades, maybe even more likely than not within the century. But I do want to pause a little bit on, on this. The next couple of decades, we could have these artificial robots, beings taking over, taking over and being, becoming more intelligent than us, more capable of navigating complex decisions. In your estimation, how much of this has been discussed? And are the people working in this area, I know that you know them, you know what they're working on. Are they having these moral reflections? Are they having these big conversations going, hey guys, should we just hit pause until we decide whether this is what we want for humanity? Like, is that happening, Will? So there is a growing and very vibrant AI safety community. And these are people who are taking very seriously the fact that there are such rapid developments in AI, taking seriously the fact that the leading AI models currently have used the computational power of about a honeybee brain. Yeah, right. <laughs> but within about a decade, um, they will be using the computational power of a human brain, and then they will overtake that considerably. And are really trying to think, okay, what's the significance of this for society as a whole? How can we navigate this so that the outcome is good rather than bad? Okay. In particular, how do we stop this kind of AI takeover scenario? Is it enough though? Is it enough of a discussion? Is it broad enough? Is it incorporating politicians and policymakers? And I mean, so are people on, on this mission? 
I think it's growing a lot, but it's clearly not enough. I mean, it's still almost no one in the grand scheme of things. Does it keep you awake at night? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does. I mean, I think one thing to naturally compare to is climate change, where climate change is well known and well understood by essentially everyone, (laughs) certainly everyone with a good education. Basically, all politicians are aware of it. People are discussing it as one of the issues of our time. You know, it's a third of college students want to use it want to work on climate change or think it's a very important priority in their life. It's hot right now. It's Yeah, <laughs> very good. <laughs> in contrast, what's the fraction of people who appreciate that there's a very good chance that one of the most important technologies, one of the most pivotal moments in all of human history will occur within our lifetimes? I like would put 0.1%. 1%. Yeah, very, oh, yeah. very small. Yeah. Whereas this is something that like everyone should be thinking about. Everyone should and I've got to confess, seriously. while I was working on the climate stuff that I do, I knew it was happening and also the biotech stuff. I knew it was happening. I put it on my mental shelf, the same mental shelf. I put the rules of cricket and how to use PowerPoint, which Mm. is like too much for me right now, you know. And um, But, yes, through diving deeper, taking off another layer, I've realised this is huge. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I took you off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I want to swing it back. We were I was getting your take on what you think is the chances of us wiping ourselves out. Toby Ord says one in six in the next hundred years or so. Mm. You're saying it's more like one in a hundred, broadly speaking, but slightly different metrics. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that was for, you know, just the end of all intelligent life. So that's putting AI to the side. AI is a little bit different from, say, a pandemic that kills everybody because the threat is... Humans get disempowered. But the point is, Perhaps if AI humans, takes yeah. over, life won't be worth living. I think we can agree on all of that. So what would you say is the risk of life just not being as it is, life being really not worth living? What's that risk? Oh, like, yeah, then my my estimate's pretty similar to Toby's, actually. One in six. Um, yeah, where that's both through um, AI's taking over or humanity using AI for bad ends too. And war, like massive unrest is another thing as well. If it's just the chance of a third world war, that goes much higher. I think in our lifetimes, it's something like one in three or 40%. The second question you asked was like, can we even predict this stuff? Like, how can we rise to the challenge? Well, one thing that gives me some hope there is the field of forecasting. So this is work that's making, you know, impressive progress on getting better estimates of things that will happen in the future and just improving our techniques to forecast events. What will that do though? I mean, I know for pandemics... That would be helpful because I know that this realm, the realm that you work in, actually predicted 
the most recent pandemic, COVID, I think as early as 2014, that was a discussion you uh, lot were all having, right? Yeah. So we were very actively promoting people to work in pandemic preparedness. Um, when uh, I got the chance to pitch a single policy to the first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, I think in 2017, and I chose pandemic preparedness. We were very concerned about this, um, as were many other leading epidemi- epidemiologists. And in fact, on one forecasting platform, we made this estimate, a community that overlaps heavily with effective altruism, estimated the probability of a pandemic that kills at least 10 million people between the years 2016 and 2026 at about one in three. There we go. So uh, We're talking the same numbers once again, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah. And so this is an example of how, you know, this was just actually quite predictable, but people tend to not think in terms of probability. They think, oh, well, that won't happen. It hasn't happened for a hundred years. So, you know, it probably won't happen again and probably won't happen in the next 10 years was correct, but there was a very significant chance of it. And when you're talking about tens of millions of people dead and tens of trillions of dollars of economic damage, well, we should really be preparing for that. And the mental health. I mean, yeah, um, just untold There's so many, so many layers of damage. Even if it was a, say, a one in 10 chance, you know, if you were told that there was a one in 10 chance that the flight you were about to board is going to crash... There's no bloody way you'd get on it, would you? No way. Yet we can't actually extrapolate that out to something I think that's far worse, which is not just the death of a couple of hundred people, but the death of all humanity. How do we get around that sort of cognitive quirk? Can we? I think it's tough, again. And I think it's easy for people to think about this and dismiss it as like, oh, it's science fiction. So one thing I think we can do is look to history. Imagine being in the mid-1930s or something, and someone tells you like, oh, there's going to be a war that will kill 60 million people where bombs <laughs> will be deployed that can wipe out entire cities in a single day. And you'd be like, what? This is mad. In particular, you know, even leading physicists were very skeptical of the idea that we could make nuclear weapons. In fact, the day before a leading physicist came up with the idea of the chain reaction, um, another leading physicist said it was moonshine, would never possibly happen. The day before, wow. And so one thing to get us in the right frame of mind is just to think how much change has happened, even on what is historically speaking, very short timescales. This can be in terms of technology, where it was really only a matter of years from the discovery that the idea of nuclear fission to the use of a nuclear weapon, the rise of Nazi ideology, you know, the formation of the Nazi party was only 20 years before the outbreak of World War II. Really huge things can happen kind of very quickly. Looking at history, you can see some people making absurd predictions about, you know, future technology and we're all in spacesuits living on the moon, whatever, by the year 2000 and kind of laugh at them. But we also see this track record of people making absurd conclusions in the other direction, where these don't appreciate the light of technological progress. So we had a actually surprisingly good understanding of the mechanism behind climate change, how much carbon dioxide would lead to how much warming. From the 1950s onwards. Much earlier than that, in fact. I mean, this Svantorinius in, I think, 1896, came up with the first quantitative estimate of how much warming you get from a given amount of carbon dioxide. I think you cover that in your book. I do talk about it in the book. And he's actually surprisingly accurate, <laughs> given how early the work was. The temp- even the temperature increase, right? Um, uh, even the, yeah, the amount mm, of temperature increase. It was yeah. a little on the high side, but qualitatively he just got it right. But then, you know, it still took 
60 years, 70 years before there was kind of sufficient scientific consensus on it. But a big thing as well was that people just didn't appreciate just how much coal and oil and gas we were going to burn over the course of the 20th century. So they thought that this was a problem for like hundreds of years time. But really, it was actually much more urgent than that. It doesn't answer the question whether we are capable of listening to all of these predictions and forethoughts and, you know, and so on. But I think that's such a bigger, larger, and and I'd say slightly depressing conversation to have. I might move on to potential solutions. And we're sitting here, I think, in the headquarters of the Global Priorities Institute. And I think across the hallway there, I think I saw a little plaque on the door saying the forethought. Forethought, that's right. Yeah, that's right, Institute. And you are a co-founder in all of these things. What should we be seeing as our priority? There's all these swirling risks and factors. What are the global priorities? Okay, so some of the top priorities One is the safe development of artificial intelligence. So that means both on a technical side, ensuring that AI systems are very carefully designed to be safe so they don't do radically misaligned dangerous things. In particular, AIs don't try and seek power um, and disempower us. Is that horse bolted though? AI systems we have at the moment are not very powerful Mm. compared to humans. A bee's brain, okay. We can do a bee's brain. They can do amazing things. You can give it a prompt that says, when I visited my grandmother in hospital, I felt a certain color. Then when I got cut off in traffic, I felt another color. And then what color would you get if you mixed together these two colors? You ask that question to a leading language model, and it responds by saying, when you visited your grandmother in hospital, you would have felt a sad color, like blue. When you got cut off in traffic, you would have felt an angry color, like red. Combining the two colors, red and blue, you'd get purple. Purple is the answer. And that's very sophisticated reasoning, and that's what the top language models can do. Having said that, what it's doing is just giving you text. It's not doing other things in the world. It's not trying to take actions to them. It's not creating. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are other things that are designed to create, and they can do amazing things. You can say, create a photo of an astronaut riding a unicorn in the style of Andy Warhol. And (laughs) And the AI model will create a picture that's an almost perfect depiction of that. So it, again, kind of under, seemingly understands the text such that it can create an image based on that text. Mm. They're incredibly impressive, but they're not nearly at the stage where we should be worrying okay. like, oh, these might take over. But your point is the discussion has to happen now. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And a field needs to build and grow around this. And we can start to use some of these models to develop some of the techniques that will be useful as the models get more and more powerful. That could service in in human flourishing as opposed to our extinction. What are some of the other priorities? So there's also a governance aspect of AI as well. It would be extremely bad if there was a race dynamic between different companies or certainly between different countries in the way that was a race dynamic for nuclear weapons. So shortly after World War II, there was a couple of plans, the Baruch plan and the Gromitko plan, which were aiming for disbanding all nuclear weapons, fissile material would be controlled by the UN, but there just wasn't the international cooperation Mm. um, available for that. So secondly, then on the biotech side, there's technology. Um, So we could have technology that allows us to defend against pathogens very powerfully. The one I'm most excited about at the moment, which is still very early stage, it's called far UVC, but it's just a particular spectrum of light that if with sufficient intensity could sterilize all the airborne pathogens in a room. So the thought here, it needs to be tested for safety and efficacy, but the thought here is just as fire regulation, you know, you build a building, there's loads of ways you've got to make it compliant so that it doesn't burn down. Similarly, you could have all buildings that have to be 
compliant to be protective against disease. All of the light fittings could, all of the lights could have this particular spectrum being emitted, and that would mean we'd be vastly more protected against another pandemic, as well as, as a side benefit, basically eliminating all airborne disease. You wouldn't get a cold again, you wouldn't get the flu. Now that's very early stage, we're going to invest a lot of money into trying to um, speed that up as fast as possible, assess it for efficacy um, and safety, and if it's looking good, then promote it. But that's the sort of thing. I mean, this is a general phenomenon that's known as differential technological progress. Some sort of technology is very scary, could be very bad. Some could be very good. So we want to accelerate the things that are helping us defend against threats rather than the ones that help us. I've got to say, having this conversation is a huge relief because when you go down the rabbit hole of existential risk, it's painful. It puts the global climate crisis into sort of perspective in some ways because it's only part of the issue. I do love how you've swung your whole thinking around to the the technology that could potentially make life awesome. Like this is the other side of the coin. And it's, I feel, the one that could actually save us because humans respond to positive outcomes. We, we, we need hope. The doom and gloom thing was a real problem for the climate crisis until we started to see that it actually makes economic sense to start to switch to renewables. And then the good news story started to accelerate things. And I think it will start, it'll continue to accelerate things exponentially. And we know that because people have made more progress faster than we anticipated over the last sort of five, six years. Because of that very factor, we grasp on to the good news. Absolutely. And I think the example of climate change is a great one because there is an enormous amount of discussion about the problem and how bad things are going to be, and surprisingly little comparatively in terms of solutions. Yeah. But it's solutions that really matter. And there are some things that we have done that have been enormously effective. So taking the example of Germany, in what was quite a strange move for a fairly northern latitude and cloudy country, it invested enormous amounts of money in subsidizing solar panels. It basically underwrote the entire solar industry. And now solar panels have, I mean, they've dropped by in cost over the last few decades by a factor of about 250. So there's this enormous drop in cost. They are now getting extremely competitive with fossil fuels. Mm. They will certainly significantly drop below the price of fossil fuels. That's this enormous step forward. Well, the same happened in Australia. I think Australia's at the forefront and had a similar policy in terms of subsidizing solar panels. It works. Yeah, absolutely. It works. And that is a success story that people don't really know about. And we should be doing much more, I think, to celebrate successes and point to the solutions that are most effective. And that's really what I'm hoping to do um, with this book and, you know, with a general focus on the long term. Merely talking about like, oh, there are these threats, they're very terrifying, like we should be worried. Like that's not helping unless we're able to say, look, no, there are things like far UVC lighting that Mm. can sterilize rooms. There are things like early detection systems. So having just like constant monitoring of wastewater or um, constant like detection of diagnosis of healthcare workers where take a saliva, saliva sample and you screen it for all like DNA, from human DNA in there to see like, are there any new pathogens? So getting very early detection of new pathogens. As you say many times over, it's, we could go one way or the other, Mm -hmm. and it's really our choice. I mean, it really comes down to this idea of moral reflection. What we need to be doing is having these big moral discussions now. And I'm going to ask you again, are we capable of that? 
are we capable of also sacrificing now because it will take sacrifice now for future benefits you know like how do you sell it in when you're trying to get people enthused about it so i think two things um one is that you know this is a book about long termism and making the long term go well but these ways of making the long term go well have enormous benefits for the present as well so i use the example of climate change moving to clean energy yes it's good for climate change it's also good for in terms of health benefits because just the particulates from fossil fuels kill 3.5 million people every year yeah and air pollution from climate change kills 100 million yeah so this is a story we need to be telling. This is what media needs to be discussing. It's what governments need to be engaging in. It's what academics need to be standing behind podiums talking about. I absolutely agree with you. I get excited when I start to hear it, these topics talked in, in those terms. We have to talk radical hope because we do have that potentiality and we are geared towards it if we have good leadership that takes us there because that is our weakness and it's also our strength. We respond to incredible leadership and that's what we've got to look out for. And I use this phrase, Will, in my latest book, we've got to choose better profits, you know, and that's up to all of us. That's what we can do right now is to choose to read the right material, go down the right rabbit holes, engage in the right movements and communities. And then we get this kind of leadership. We get access to this kind of leadership. I guess I have to ask, though, you're a utilitarian, at least to the extent that effective altruism is very much pegged from that moral sort of theory or philosophical theory. To what extent, though, do the means justify the ends? So, for instance, would totalitarianism be justified? Like, I know this is a discussion that is had in these circles. Would surveillance, a surveillance state prevent, say, some geek in a backyard inventing some biotechnology because that is a possibility now? Is that the kind of kind of discussion we need to be having that surveillance state might just have to be, you know, justified? Yeah. So I think no. Um, and for two reasons. I mean, one is just, this is a way in which I'm not a utilitarian. So I'm very sympathetic to utilitarianism insofar as I give it um, some significant weight in my decision-making. It's helpful. I, mean, I think it's extremely important to focus on just how much good can your actions do and to measure that in the first instance, at least in terms of impact on people's lives. You know, what I ultimately think is you place some weight on a variety of different moral perspectives, take the kind of best compromise. And then when we look in the real world, I think it's very, very rare that even from a utilitarian perspective, ends justify the means reasoning pays off well. I think normally there are just ways of doing enormous amounts of good that don't involve kind of violating common sense side constraints. More in the kind of domain of philosophy seminar room thought experiments that you get like, okay, you can kill one person to save 10. Would it be justified to do that? And we assume there's no other consequences of killing the person. That tends to not come up. But I think once you also take, you know, a variety of different model perspectives into account, you also just want to respect people's rights, even independently, you know, give that weight, like even beyond just the bad consequence. Utilitarianism always strikes me as getting quite rigid if you mm -hmm. extrapolate it out too far. Mm. And there's a whole range of softer, spiritual kind of messy aspects to the way the human moral entity operates mm -hmm. that utilitarianism can't always encapsulate. So I find it, it gets to us a bit of a cul-de-sac in my thinking at some points. So I'm glad to hear you say the same. Yeah. But then there's a second uh, thought of even just from a utilitarian perspective, would a you know, totalitarian state or surveillance state be good? And I think not. So, you know, one way in which I perhaps differ from some other people working on existential risk where 
My overall estimate of existential risk is similar to Toby, but um, I place more weight on risks from bad human actors. So democracy, I think, is like quite a fragile thing. It's very unusual in history. Throughout history, almost all states have been authoritarian in some way, monarchy or mm. uh, dictatorships. We've had some real close calls with uh, the rise of communism, Nazism, totalitarian states, existing political leaders who have authoritarian aims and tendencies. It's a very natural tendency, I think, where if you have a certain ideology, well, you want to lock in that ideology. And I think if we had some totalitarian state, okay, perhaps we can get via that, we can reduce extinction risk to zero. But at what cost? I think plausibly we lose out on almost all value because the incentives that we have to make moral progress that we've seen over the past few hundred years would disappear. We would have the kind of ruling ideology and that could be locked in in place forever. But that would be like, oh, hey, we've got the Roman Empire. <laughs> Imagine if that took over the world and just locked in its values. Well, you wouldn't have extinction risk, but you would have slavery. You would have people watching other people get disemboweled in the um, Colosseum. Uh, you would have like extreme patriarchy. Yeah. And we shouldn't think that like, oh, well, we now have figured it all out, morally speaking. We should be trying to build a world that's capable of moral progress going potentially quite far into the future. And so it does mean that there's this tricky risk trade-off where if you have a centralization of political power, globally speaking, well, then you can reduce some of these risks, such as from extinction or perhaps space dynamics for AI, but you'd increase other risks. Yeah, And yeah. so in terms of global political organization, the key is like threading the needle, where perhaps you have like very strong cooperation on issues like bio, AI, climate, but you don't have something like a global police force. I actually think we've probably got to a point where we have done a bit of a 101 on long-termism. I think it's probably enough for people to, to get a bit of an understanding and then they can go forth and read more of your work and in particular your book that comes out August, September. This is a question I ask a lot of people at the end of the podcast, and I'm sorry to throw it at you with no warning, but I'm sure you'll cope. And the question is this, if we were to lose it all, what is left? What is left for you, Will? If there was some certainty that we were going to all be wiped out in six months' time, the things that would most matter to me, I think, are my relationships. So with my friends, with my partner, with my family as well. It seems like to me that of all the things in my life, those are the things that most give my life meaning, um, that bring me most happiness as well. And so, yeah, if I imagine having only a few months left for the world to survive, I would want to devote it to deepening those relationships. What about the work that you do? Is that I think the work would lose meaning, both because I, the reason I do work is the work I do is in order to have an impact. Um, and if we're all certainly dead in six months, it won't, by definition in the thought experiment, it won't have an impact. Mm -hmm. If I thought there was some chance my work could make a difference, even if a very small one. Like a, even a one in a million chance, would you still go there? Um, I think I probably would, yeah. Um, taking a baseball bat to the asteroid that's coming towards us. <laughs> um, even putting aside, you know, impact understood in more utilitarian terms. I think most people see the work they're doing as being meaningful and rewarding because it's part of this kind of legally erased through the generations that in doing intellectual work or other sorts of work, artistic work and so on, you're building on this project that has been occurring for thousands of years. And you are then passing on <laughs> a cathedral of knowledge that's a little bit better built and passing it on to the next generation. And that's part of what makes it meaningful. And so if you're doing it and you've got this unfinished cathedral and you're adding one extra brick, 
and it still will, you know, it will remain unfinished. Well, and I think just like empties it a little bit of value it would otherwise have. Mm, that's an interesting take on that question I often ask. Uh, will, I really enjoyed that. Thanks, me too. <laughs> you know, it's funny, as I packed up and left Will's offices, I was invited to eat lunch in the vegan cafe where all the philosophers who work on the various effective altruism and forethought and global prioritising projects can eat for free. As I walked to the cafeteria, there was this big workshopping wall in one of the corridors with various problems messily mind mapped in, in writing. And one of the questions that was posed on this wall was, what would you do if all the world's problems were solved? Some of the answers that had been jotted down were work as a carpenter, sleep properly, explore altered states of consciousness. And one of them wrote, lots of powerlifting. In some ways, the question is another way to ask the question that I ask, what is left if we lose it all? What would we do? Who would we be if we solved all of these problems that could also wipe us out? This is how I think we need to be viewing what we face as a species. Do we want to lose it all or to have it all and even more, as Will explains? I truly invite everyone here to stay connected with these issues. I mean, they are as big and important as anything we will ever encounter. We have to have these moral discussions now. I mean, it's the new frontier for our attention. That's the way I put it. And Will is right. We can learn a lot from the climate debate that we've been wrestling with now for a good 30 years. Giving a shit before the problem really implodes winds up having only upsides. It leads to the very flourishing that I reckon all of us can't help but be enticed by. Our generation singularly has the power and responsibility to determine two diametrically different paths for humanity. I'm truly excited by the prospect and I hope that you are too after this chat. Keep it wild, everyone. Spread the word. Have these kinds of moral discussions now. And please do share this episode far and wide, perhaps as a starting point. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.